The following is produced by Artisan Church. Welcome to the Artisan Church Podcast, a weekly broadcast of Artisan Church in Rochester, New York. To learn more about Artisan Church or to support the ministry, visit www.artisanchurch.com. Well, I know um, a lot of you have been to visit my house. Anybody been to visit my house? Yeah. If you've never been to visit my house, uh, come over anytime. Not anytime, but <laughs> uh, <laughs> you're always welcome, but not always. <laughs> uh, but if you have been to my house, you probably noticed that um, we have this big yard there, and we own one house, and uh, Jason and Lisa, who have moved to Connecticut but still own two other houses um, next door. Anna and Elliot live in one, and um, somebody in the room is going to buy the other one someday. But there's three houses. They make this big block of a yard there, and we, uh, we all share the space there. You may have also noticed uh, when you've been to visit that there's a red house right on the corner. There's a big red house right on the corner next to mine, and nobody from Artisan owns that one uh, yet. Um, but uh, I've I've often thought it would be really great for somebody to, to buy that, and, and we'd have this just kind of really creepy commune um, there, <laughs> like even more than it already is. <laughs> um, but actually, I've, I've talked to the owner of that house on a number of occasions. His price is way too high, so <laughs> don't bother for now. Um, but he told me the story of when he bought the house. Now, I'm very proud of the neighborhood that we live in. I think that the neighborhood of the arts is one of the nicest neighborhoods in the city, and uh, I, I really love the place, but it wasn't always that way. 20, 30 years ago, this neighborhood was a little bit sketchy. And to offer proof, um, my neighbor bought that house in the late 70s, early 80s for $300. The, the city was selling um, foreclosure property uh, at auction, and they did it alphabetical by street name. I live on University Avenue. <laughs> And so by the time the used came around, all the people had, you know, bought their houses and, and gone on to other things. And uh, um, Bob, the guy who owns the house, bought the house for $300. <laughs> and uh, he had to evict some tenants, and uh, he told me the sheriff came in, you know, with shotguns, and, and it was kind of a scary thing. And then they sh- he said, I really should have boarded up the windows because they came back that night and threw rocks through them. Um, and so he ended up putting a good deal of his own money into the property. It wasn't like he, his baseline was not $300. But uh, I've, I've talked to him about maybe, you know, somebody buying this house someday and what he would like to get for it. And I'll just say it's, it's many, 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 many times what he paid for it, the $300. It's many times what he's put into it uh, over the years, too. Um, but he took the initial risk in purchasing a property in a neighborhood that at that time was you know, not one of the ones that we would put on the brochure here in Rochester. The reason that the neighborhood improved over the course of the past couple of decades is because he did that and because lots of other people did similar things. And they invested themselves and their money in the neighborhood. It's okay. You don't... (laughs) 
Eliza is part of our congregation too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Just like mom and pop. <laughs> no. We, I, always, I always try to help everybody understand that children are part of what we do here and the fact that they make a different noise than the rest of us doesn't make them less important. Um, and now I've drawn even more attention to that. Let's just keep going. <laughs> but Bob and, and a number of other people like him invested their money, put themselves on the line for this neighborhood, and as a result, over the course of the 20 or 30 years since then, it has turned into, as I said, one of the nicest neighborhoods in the city. And that's what investment is. You put money into something that you think has potential to improve. And in many cases, it's the actual act of investing in something that causes it to improve. But there's a risk there because if you step out and nobody else does, then you're stuck with a, a really inexpensive property with no windows and nobody who wants to live there, metaphorically speaking. Well, today's passage in Jeremiah um, contains a similar kind of story, um, only actually much more dramatic. And we'll get uh, into the drama of this uh, event after we read it. But I wanted to read the whole passage to you. And if you'd like to follow along, uh, you can use the red Bibles that are under your chairs, or you can use your own Bible if you brought one. If you don't have a Bible, you're welcome to take one of those red Bibles home with you. Those are our gift to you if you'd like. If you are using them, it's on page 643. And if you're trying to find it in your own Bible, it's just a little bit past halfway through the book. I'm going to read chapter 32 and verses 1 through 3 and then verses 6 through 15. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord in the tenth year of King Zedekiah of Judah, which was the eighteenth year of Nebuchadnezzar. Now, this translation actually says Nebuchadnezzar, but you've often heard the story of Nebuchadnezzar, the, the Babylonian king. It's the same guy, just a different variation on the name. At that time, the army of the king of Babylon was besieging Jerusalem, and the prophet Jeremiah was confined in the court of the guard that was in the palace of the king of Judah, where King Zedekiah of Judah had confined him. Zedekiah had said, Why do you prophesy and say, Thus says the Lord, I am going to give this city into the hand of the king of Babylon, and he shall take it? Skip to verse 6. Jeremiah said, The word of the Lord came to me. Hanamel, son of your uncle Shalom, is going to come to you and say, Buy my field that is at Anathoth, for the right of redemption by purchase is yours. Then my cousin Hanamel came to me in the court of the guard in accordance with the word of the Lord and said to me, Buy my field that is at Anathoth in the land of Benjamin, for the right of possession and redemption is yours. Buy it for yourself. Then I knew that this was the word of the Lord. And I bought the field at Anathoth from my cousin Hanamel and weighed out the money to him, 17 shekels of silver. I signed the deed, sealed it, got witnesses, and weighed the money on scales. Then I took the sealed deed of purchase containing the terms and conditions and the open copy, and I gave the deed of purchase to Barak, son of Neriah, son of Maseah, in the presence of my cousin Hanamel, in the presence of the witnesses who signed the deed of purchase, and in the presence of all the Judeans who were sitting in the court of the guard. In their presence I charged Barak, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Take these deeds, both this sealed deed of purchase and this open deed, 
and put them in an earthenware jar in order that they may last for a long time. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, houses and fields and vineyards shall again be bought in this land. So the first thing that this chapter contains here is uh, some information that helps us date the events and put them into the proper context historically, which uh, if you've heard me talk at all, you know I'm a big fan of context. I think context is actually everything. You have to understand what is going on before you can understand what's going on. Um, And so it starts out and says that this happened in the 10th year of King Zedekiah of Judah, um, and that would make it 588 B.C., which means it's less than two years before the fall of Jerusalem at the hands of the Babylonian army. Now, in this passage, in this chapter, they call the Babylonians the Chaldeans. It's the the Babylonian Empire. Now, you may remember, or this may be brand new to you, but it's okay, that Israel was one kingdom under Saul, King David, and King Solomon. And when Solomon died and his two sons took over and started to fight, it led to the, the division of the kingdom of the Jewish people from one nation, Israel, into two. Okay. And that happened at about 930 B.C. So there are separate monarchies from that point on. You had Israel in the north and the nation of Judah in the south. And so Jeremiah is prophesying to the nation of Judah in the south. Um, now, that lasted, that, div- that divided kingdom, they lived um, relatively peaceably until 722 B.C. when the northern kingdom was conquered by the Assyrian Empire. And then just a couple of short years after this passage, the southern kingdom was conquered too by the Babylonian Empire. So you you see how that uh, Mediterranean basin business plays out with the people of God. And and, uh, this, this, uh, this occasion happens just on the cusp of that second conquest and the fall of the holy city of Jerusalem, um, to the Babylonians, uh, and, and after which the, uh, the, the nation of Judah, the remnant of God's people, was sent into exile. So it's, we're, we're right on the edge of, of like a huge moment in the, in the history of the people of God. And Jeremiah had been prophesying that this conquest would take place a lot. Like he would not shut up about it to the point that the king of Judah, this is the, the Hebrew king, Zedekiah, said, why do you keep saying that we're going to be conquered by the Babylonians? I'm trying to work a deal here. He's trying to work with the Egyptians, you know, how to make this thing hold together, and you cannot stop talking about how we're condemned by God to be conquered. So he locks him up. If you speak out against the... Uh, governmental and religious establishment, you'll probably be locked up in the palace. (laughs) That's the way it goes. So that's where the events of chapter 32 take place. In fact, you can already see the beginnings of this transition in the opening verses of the passage because it gives two different ways of dating it. It says it's the 10th year of King Zedekiah of Judah. It was the 18th year of Nebuchadnezzar, who's the king of Babylon. And so you can see that transition beginning to happen. We're dating it both ways now. Pretty soon we're only going to be dating it by the Babylonian king. Now, I have to admit, I love the lectionary. As you know, I like the fact that there's multiple passages of Scripture. I like the fact that it prescribes for, for me 
which texts I need to engage with and bring before you, and it, it, it takes that step of, uh, step of choosing stuff out of it for me, and it prevents me from just picking my favorite passages all the time. Uh, but sometimes, man, the lectionary gives you lemons, and you have to make lemonade. This passage to me, at, at, on first glance, it's kind of a strange story to, to give a sermon about. Because really the only thing that happens in here is a business transaction, right? Jeremiah buys some land, the end. <laughs> it actually happens to be the most detailed business transaction in the Bible, which for people who may already be worried that the Bible is a little bit boring, you throw business transactions in there <laughs> and lots of details therein, and it's, it's kind of like, what are we doing here? But I mean, we learn a little bit about how things happen, and, you know, I've already tipped my hand that I like context, and I've just given you a, a mini history lesson about the, uh, the Assyrian and Babylonian conquests of, you know, really boring history stuff. So I, I kind of, I guess I could get into that. I like it a little bit. You learn how things are done, that there's the, there, they made two deeds. One of them was sealed, the official copy, and one of them was open, used for reference, and, and uh, you have the, the price given there, the 17 shekels of silver, which works out to be about seven ounces of silver. Um, you have the multiple witnesses and signatories of the deal, and you see all this pomp and circumstance for how it's done. But, you know, it's, it's not particularly exciting, right? It is, after all, just a real estate transaction. But there is, at the very end of this passage, a little glimmer of spiritual hope that we can find. Verse 15. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Houses and fields and vineyards shall again be bought in this land. This is, as I said, just on the cusp of the conquest by the Babylonian horde. (laughs) The people of God are about to be destroyed. The city is about to be laid waste. The temple, where God's presence is localized, is about to be destroyed. And it's not like this isn't on the table. Jeremiah has been locked up in the palace of King Zedekiah, we're prophesying this very thing. And yet, he decides that he wants to buy a plot of land, which is crazy. When you invest in a piece of property, you buy low so that you can sell high. You buy something that you think has potential. The object is to buy the ugliest house on the block and dress it up and sell it for profit. You don't buy a nice house on a street that's about to be bulldozed so that they can make a highway. You certainly don't buy a piece of land in a country that's about to be overrun, burned to the ground, and destroyed. Least of all, when you're the one who has been saying that this is going to happen. 
And yet, Jeremiah has this little glimmer of hope from the Lord. And he buys the piece of land because he believes that sometime in the future, houses and fields and vineyards shall again be bought in this land. He does this to make a point with the people he's been prophesying to and against. You, you, you note all the people who watch this deal take place. <laughs> In verse 12, not only the cousin that he bought it from, not only the witnesses who signed the deed, but in the presence of all the Judeans who were sitting in the court of the guard where he was confined. He made this deal from his little house arrest. Who knows, maybe even King Zedekiah was there looking out his window, watching Jeremiah make this deal. And he gives it to Barak, his secretary, Barak who uh, actually edited a lot of this material, we think, uh, and tells him, Put these deeds in an earthenware jar so that they may last, what, a long time. Because it might be a long time before it matters that anybody owns anything in this particular country. So I want to ask you if you would be willing to put yourself in Jeremiah's shoes for a little bit. And obviously, you know, as I said, and I think it was the first week of this Jeremiah passage, we're in a different place in a different time. I don't think there's always some really complicated one-to-one relationship between what Jeremiah is experiencing and the nation of Israel, the nation of Judah are experiencing, and what we're experiencing. But I do want to look for some way to apply the hope that Jeremiah puts at the end of this deal to our own story, our own lives. And so I wonder if there's something in your life or something going on around you that seems doomed, as the nation of Judah was doomed at the time of this story. Maybe it's something very personal to you, a relationship, your own faith, and how much of a grip you feel like you have on it right now. Maybe like it was for Jeremiah, it's a place, it's your city, or the town where you live, or your school, or your neighborhood. It just seems like there is no hope. Maybe it's a family member who is so far down the wrong road that you you can't imagine the way they would find back. Maybe it's something to do with your faith community, whether that's artisan or whether you're visiting. And perhaps it's even something that is completely and totally beyond hope. 
and here you'd, you'd be in the company of Jeremiah himself, who, even though he made this deal, if we were to read on, you see, after the deal is complete, he prays to God and essentially says, are you sure that's what you wanted me to do? Because you're the one who's been telling me you're going to give these people over to destruction. Maybe the doom that you see in some area of life seems completely and utterly hopeless. There's nothing you can do about it. Take just a minute and and uh, kind of soak in the silence and think about that situation, or maybe it'll come to mind while you're while you're sitting. Now that you've got that situation in your mind, the next thing I want to ask you is, do you feel as if you can place your trust in God with respect to that situation? That some good can come from it. Is it possible, can you imagine any way that some good could come from that situation? Even if everything is falling apart, I want to quote to you a really famous verse in the Bible. Many of you could say this by heart. And I think it's a verse that too often gets thrown in your face when you are going through really horrible times. Somebody will quote to you Romans 8.28, won't they? We know that all things work together for good for those who love God who are called according to his purpose. I don't know about you, but the way that verse has been interpreted to me over the years is as follows. It doesn't matter how horrible the thing you're going through is. It's God's purpose for you. And everything that God purposes for you is good if you're called according to his purpose. Anybody heard that variation on that verse? That's, that's some bitter comfort when you're going through horrible times. And I think it's completely wrong. I think it's a horrible interpretation of the verse. It's a terrible application. What I think the verse actually means is that no matter how bad the thing is, God can make something good and will make something good out of it if we trust in him. That may be too subtle a distinction, perhaps, but for me, it's absolutely crucial. It's the difference between God is making this horrible thing happen to you and you just have to take it because it's what he wants for you, and 
We live in a broken, fallen, screwed up world where terrible things happen to us and to those we love. And yet God's grace is present there and he will and can make good things come out of even the worst that this broken world throws at us. Does that distinction make sense? I don't know about you. I I find so much more comfort in the second perspective than in the first. And I think that it's that hope that Jeremiah has at the end of this story here. It's the reason he was willing to go through and put his money on the line. Because he believed that even this conquering army that was going to come through and wipe out the nation of the people of God, there's a glimmer of hope at the end. And so I want to ask you if you feel like you can place that trust in God in light of the situation that you've just thought about. Can you trust that there is some good that God can make of this situation. And if you can muster that hope, let's call that faith, because it's going to take a lot in some situations. The next thing I want to ask you to consider is what investment is God asking you to make in that situation? Remember, Jeremiah laid out cash for this deal. (laughs) He weighed out that money on scales, feeling the silver pass from his hands into the hands of his cousin. This was not a leveraged mortgage investment. This was cash on the barrelhead. And so maybe for you, there's money that you could invest into some situation. If you're in a neighborhood with a terrible school, you might want to invest some money into making that not so bad. It might be that God is asking you to make an investment in leadership, which is the other thing that Jeremiah did. As I said, he he didn't just do this deal in a back alley. He did this in front of anybody who would watch. This was the prophet of the Lord, who had been condemning the nation, who made this purchase in front of all the people who had heard his dire warnings. Sometimes taking leadership is is a hard step to take because if you step into something that's going to fall apart, if other people don't follow you, that's kind of scary. (laughs) But if nobody takes that step, it's definitely going to fall apart. It might be something that you never get to see the fruit of. Do you know how long Jeremiah lived after this transaction? Not long. Five years, maybe ten. Probably not, though. Within a couple of years, he was sent into exile in Egypt, and that's where he died. So those deeds were sealed up in that earthenware jar long after he was six feet in the ground. And he never saw the fruit of his investment. 
Is that the kind of investment that you'd be willing to make in whatever situation you just had in your mind? I want to give you a couple of more minutes of silence to think about this. And uh, if you have a bulletin, there are pens under your chairs. You may want to just try to listen to God about that situation and see if, if there's some investment that he's calling you to make into whatever it is. And uh, I think if you write it down, <laughs> it'll be harder to pretend it didn't happen later. So take a minute or two and do that. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for the fact that we can find meaning and purpose and direction and guidance, even from what seems like the most mundane passage in the Bible. And uh, we lift now to you uh, those situations and circumstances and relationships and people and neighborhoods that seem like they are without hope. Where the decay and destruction uh, that is present around us seems so close and so unavoidable. And though it sometimes takes all that we have, we want to say that we put our trust in you and our faith in you, that you can work good out of any evil, and that you call us according to that purpose. And so we also ask for your courage 
to make the investment that you have called us to make. Whether that hits us in the wallet or in the heart. When it makes us feel put out or inconvenienced. When it terrifies us of the risk that we have to take in stepping out. We ask for your courage and your strength and your grace. The grace that brings our faith and the grace that strengthens us to do your work. We ask all this through Christ our Lord. Amen. I want to invite you now to participate in the sacrament of communion. And uh, parents, if you uh, would like to take communion with your children, you can go down and get them now. And uh, just be a little aware of, uh, that people may be praying and meditating as you come back in. Uh, you also can wait until you've taken communion to go get them if you prefer that. Um, all who are seeking to follow Jesus in this place uh, are welcome at this table. Do this in a way that's called intinction. You just tear off a piece of the bread, dip it in the wine or the juice. We have uh, both there, whatever's more appropriate for you. And uh, as always, do that in an act of remembrance and in reenactment of the death and resurrection of Jesus. Take that as food for your souls and remember that it's an act that unifies you not only to each other here in this room, but also to Christians around our city and around the world, and throughout time, all of whom have practiced and celebrated the Lord's Supper together in one way or another. So the table's open, and you can come whenever you're ready. This has been the Artisan Church Podcast. To receive future podcasts, go to www.artisanchurch.com slash podcast or subscribe on iTunes. Thank you for listening.